Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good evening. My name is Quentin Hardy, and I'm pleased to be back at the Commonwealth Club to be the moderator for tonight's Commonwealth Club program focused on Amy Zeigert's new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. Amy is the senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also at Stanford. Her longtime specialty is American intelligence, and her book explores the growth and the many challenges facing America's intelligence infrastructure today, particularly because of changes in technology. Tonight, as you can see, we continue in our virtual format. But the Commonwealth Club is returning to more in-person programs at its San Francisco headquarters. You can learn more about upcoming programs at the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Two quick notes before we jump into today's program. If you have a question for Professor Zagart or me, please put it in the YouTube chat box. That way your questions will be forwarded to me during the program. And additionally, though I work at Google, I am here independent of my job and nothing we cover tonight should be construed as either supported or opposed by my employer, Alphabet, or any related organizations. I believe Professor Zygart has a similar relationship with her opinions and Stanford University, Hoover Institution, et cetera, et cetera. And with that, on to tonight's program. Today, the surveillance world has a severe problem and its abundance. There are hundreds of government and private satellites circling the earth, tracking the movement of all manner of human and natural events that matter to nations and independent actors. We have billions of communications a day on social media, email, shared documents, digital video, and much more. There are thousands of producers of both real information and blatant propaganda and misinformation, and the roles of those actors are almost never clear. A teenager in his parents' home can track a billionaire's jet, while nuclear states can act like internet trolls, and North Korea finances itself with ransomware attacks against private corporations. There is an explosion of private surveillance from people tracking their own heartbeats, package delivery, and who's at the front door, to companies with online cookies and retail loyalty cards tracking our reading and spending, to firms monitoring society for the next big trend, and for all kinds of real-life spy companies for hire, private and public, both hackers and muscle. Not least, there's an enormous entertainment culture around espionage, another kind of abundance, where intelligence analysis and successful violent action are completely intertwined. Think of James Bond, the show 24, Homeland, the movie Zero Doc 30, just to name a few. So what does this mean for our country's original surveillance industry, now some 18 agencies strong with a very large budget? What are they supposed to do in this supposed new paradise of surveillance? Well, the first thing they need to do is to dispel the myths about the purpose they serve, get to the realities, and move on to how all of them can best serve America's national interest. And this is the purpose of Amy Zegart's new book. She wants to move past the lazy concepts of American intelligence and spying that are shaped by books, movies, and TV. In Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, she lays out the history and purpose of US intelligence, its increasingly important role its successes and failures, and how it might cope with today's challenges. Excuse me, I can't do much about that for now. We couldn't be meeting at a more appropriate time when Russia and NATO seem headed for a fateful conflict, marked by photos of Russian soldiers on TikTok, of Ukrainian troops showing off shoulder-filed missiles on Twitter, 
Russian videos of tanks advancing or maybe retreating, and the US president openly discussing what's in his intelligence brief. It seems like we're in new territory and intelligence is at the center of it. So I guess I'll begin right at the beginning of things. Amy Zygart, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Take us into the Ukraine. How would you describe what's going on there from an intelligence point of view? Well, Quentin, let me just start by saying thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I want to thank everybody uh, joining the Commonwealth Club. I just wish we were doing this in person, but I understand COVID restrictions make that hard. But next time, we'll do it in person. Um, it's a great question to start off. Uh, you know, Intelligence is everywhere in the headlines right now, and perhaps nowhere cent more centrally than in the current crisis with Ukraine. I think we're seeing something really new. And we are seeing it play out over the past several days where the Biden administration, as you allude to, is really sharing intelligence in a novel way. One uh, colleague of mine described it today as deterrence by disclosure. So in some ways, you can see an effort to combat information warfare and Russia's false flag operations by revealing Russian plans, right? So among the disclosures have been uh, intelligence that Vladimir Putin ha was in the process of planning a fake video with uh, a pretext for invasion of so-called Ukrainian atrocities uh, with actors and corpses and things that seem like they would just come right out of the movies. I think this is new territory. It's a new strategy. And I think it's it seems to be working. It's hard to tell right now because there are still, of course, troops uh, massing along the border. But it appears that it has surprised Putin uh, and his lieutenants. It appears you hear more talk of diplomacy. And so at the very least, I think what we have is an effort to inoculate the public to be prepared for these false narratives so they don't take hold. So I'm encouraged that this is a new trend uh, and a new strategy by the Biden administration. It's very interesting because in some ways, their objectives are objectives of perception. They don't want to occupy Ukraine per se. They wish to hold a kind of dominance over it that is perceptual. They don't want Ukraine joining NATO. They don't want a sense of another country on their border. But they don't really want to occupy the capital of Kiev, as best we can tell, correct? I think we don't know. I think Putin may not know his own intentions. I think for sure one of the major strategic objectives is to divide the NATO alliance. And ironically, I think so far that's proved the result has been the opposite of what Putin intended. But, you know, I do think it's important to bear in mind history, which is that, you know, active measures or these sort of Russian false pretexts for invasions are nothing new. Right. The Russians, the Soviets did this in Hungary in 1956. They did it in Czechoslovakia in 1968. But they're doing it at a speed and scale that is really unprecedented. And I think that's why it's so much more difficult to combat today. Right. And so who's spearheading this rather unusual um, effort of full disclosure and transparency on the U.S. side or what seems like full disclosure and transparency? You know, the public reporting really doesn't give us a clue to that. What we do, what we can see from public reporting is that it's not just one type of intelligence or not just intelligence about troop movements. It really is about, I think, revealing information. In my, in my opinion, it does two things. Number one, inoculates the public against these false narratives. So you see it coming right before the Russians start concocting false stories. But number two, it's creating friction within the Russian regime. Where is this intelligence coming from? How are we getting so much of it? How are we getting it so fast? And creating that friction is part of putting Putin on his back heel. And that gives us more of an advantage in, in this confrontation. 
Right. It's a little bit like the way they shut down an internet troll. We are being trolled by Russia and they are preventing them from putting out more misinformation, perhaps. Yes, but I think, you know, the I was just in a call with Stanford colleagues earlier today who are experts in Ukraine and, and NATO and Russia, and they pointed out something really important, which is one of the crucial things that we can't lose sight of right now is we have to provide diplomatic exit ramps for Putin. It's not enough just to have a showdown. It's not enough just to reveal intelligence. We have to figure out a way to provide face-saving exits to de-escalate this crisis. And so that diplomatic component is a, key, is a key part of what we need to do moving ahead. That's very interesting. Historically, they said that was the strongest thing the UN could do. The UN never got credit for giving people an avenue out of wars. You know, you would just take it to the UN and discuss it and put some blue helmet troops in there. And maybe that's a UN function or we need some new function to give people a face-saving way to de-escalate. Well, I think, Quentin, it's so interesting you, you bring that up because the, the, the UN dilemma is an intelligence dilemma, too, which is that they don't get credit for averting bad things. You hear a lot about failures when things go wrong, but a lot of intelligence successes come from avoiding bad outcomes in the first place, and we usually don't hear about those. The dog that doesn't bark. Um, so our leaders are seemingly somewhat prepared for this conflict. Um, they may be moving ahead with a certain level of uncertainty because everything's so novel, but they're trying interesting things and they appear to be thinking ahead to what happens next. How's the general public? Do you think the general public understands that this is a different kind of conflict and understands what's at stake and can pull together, as it were? You know, I wish I had really good data to share with you to answer that question, public opinion data uh, going back several years about what the public is understanding with respect to Russia. I just don't have that data. But I will say this. Yeah. I think when we think about all threats cyber related, we are nowhere near as prepared as a nation that we as we need to be. And I think part of that is the sense that cyber is distant, it's sterile, it may not affect me in the here and now. We can think about physical or kinetic conflict. We can imagine what that looks like, but it's harder to imagine what a cyber bad event would look like. And I think that's part of the challenge of public education about the threat landscape today. Well, I think that takes us somewhat into your book as well, because this is very much, um, while a highly readable volume, an educational volume. It could be used to teach a course to be a textbook. It could be used to educate responsible citizens. Um, I'd like to ask you what your goal was, who your ideal audience is here, and how you began to write this and where it took you. Well, Quentin, it warms my heart that you think that it could be a textbook because that's, and it could be a general audience book because those were my goals. So the book actually started in a classroom. I was teaching a class at the time at UCLA, where I was on the faculty, and I um, was polling my students about where they got information about intelligence, what they knew about intelligence, and I found that most of them didn't know anything about intelligence, and what they learned, they learned from the movies. Uh, and I found statistically significant correlations between those people who viewed a lot of spy-themed entertainment and their attitudes towards intelligence issues of the day, like waterboarding or NSA warrantless surveillance. And so what I really wanted to do was write an Intelligence 101, a book that could reveal the facts of the intelligence business for not only students, but their parents and policymakers and the general public. 
And then what happened was the world changed. And in the course, I said, one of the benefits of taking so long to write a book is, you know, things change and you, you end up changing the book. And so I started off wanting to write Intelligence 101. And I ended up also writing a book that I hope will convey Intelligence 2.0. And what I mean by that is how emerging technologies are fundamentally challenging every aspect of the intelligence enterprise for many of the reasons of abundance that you mentioned at the outset, a really wonderful description of the abundance of organizations and data and complexity that our intelligence agencies face today. So there's a big technology component to the book, and I hope that will be of use not only to students, not only to the general public, but also to policymakers who are in this policy and intelligence space. You spent 10 years, you obviously are extremely well-connected inside the intelligence community. Over those 10 years, did you witness a kind of growing education, a growing awareness of the threat landscape and the changes that have taken place? I think, yes. And the threat landscape changed dramatically. And just to give one example, you know, we talked a little bit about the cyber threat. Well, the cyber threat looks a lot different today than it did even 10 years ago. So if we go, if we wind back the clock and go to 2007, the word cyber wasn't mentioned once in the intelligence annual threat assessment that's publicly available and delivered to Congress every year. It's a really important document, really important testimony. Cyber wasn't on the radar screen at all. That's 2007, not that long ago. Fast forward five years and the cyber threat was really imagined to be a cyber Pearl Harbor, physical effects of our critical infrastructure. And fast forward to 2017, and the cyber threat is not just hacking machines, it's hacking minds. It's Russian election interference. It's polarization of American society. It's information warfare. So I think there's an acute appreciation in the intelligence community about the complicated threat landscape and the velocity of the threat landscape, which is much different than it was even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And this is an interesting dimension of your book that um, there is all this change. At the same time, you are an historian, you, you deal in history, and you go deep in the history of American intelligence. As we were talking beforehand, you told me something, reminded me of something I really had passed over that um, George Washington had not just a great belief in espionage and surveillance, but an enormous budget, a budget proportionally larger than the intelligence budget today. Talk a little bit about the growth of intelligence and what it's meant. Do you see it as linear and continuous over time, or have there been shifts that have changed what it does inside American policy? So I confess that I became obsessed with early American history and the role that intelligence played. So I spent quite some time delving into George Washington and how he thought about and used intelligence. And what you find if you look at the broad brush of history, intelligence started off as playing a central role in the founding of this country, not just George Washington, but Benjamin Franklin was very adept at information warfare. He was a printer in his day, and he actually cranked out literal fake news from a printing press in his par- in his Paris basement to sway opinion in favor of the rebels and against the redcoats. So you see this early era where intelligence plays a pivotal role in the revolution. And then what you find is this period of stagnation. 
that intelligence, much like our military, was demobilized in times of peace. And we really didn't see a significant peacetime intelligence capability until relatively recently, after World War II, with, as we were talking before, the National Security Act of 1947. So the CIA has only been around since 1947. And so compared to other countries like Russia and China, the United States is a relative newcomer to the world of espionage. And so we've seen sort of a dramatic increase in intelligence that corresponds with America's role in the world. Another fascinating element of the birth and the growth of the CIA is the kind of melding of intelligence gathering and analysis to advise policymakers and what should we call it? Kinetic efforts, street guys, assassinations, um, but the projection of violence by intelligence agencies. Do you think these are two things that had a place together or did they somehow get lined up together? How did that come to be? Because today there is a military function against intelligence as well. So this is a great question. You know, the Central Intelligence Agency really has several different cultures and different missions within one organization. So there's the collection of human intelligence, right, human sources. There's the all-source analysis, which you alluded to. And then there's the covert action piece, which includes, you know, creating physical effects. So if you think of intelligence as collecting for insight, you know, covert action is about changing something in the world. And that's very different than the rest of the mission of the agency. And so those missions have always had, lived in some, some degree of tension. But what we've seen is in the last 20 years with the global war on terror, that melding of intelligence and supporting the warfighter on the battlefield in counterterrorism operations, that's gotten much more important and much more tightly integrated. And so what I argue in the book and what I uh, argue in a, a piece I wrote in Politico was that there's good news and bad news of the past 20 years. The good news is intelligence and kinetic or warfighting operations are much more tightly connected. The bad news is they're much more tightly connected, right? Why is it the right. same? Because the more time the Central Intelligence Agency is spending hunting, which is what militaries do, the less time it can spend gathering, which is what intelligence agencies do. And a world where you can't tell those two things apart, where the CIA stops and where the military begins, is a world where the CIA is not putting enough effort into its primary mission, which is preventing strategic surprise, like a Pearl Harbor, like a 9-11. That's the unique mission of the CIA. And so there's a cost, an opportunity cost to this integration of military operations. Yes. And um, one, can, one can have a bias towards action. As they say, when you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. This is not particularly good for contemplation on a personal level and I assume on an institutional level because there's a lot of pressure to go more than sometimes at the expense of the pressure to know. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've, I've said this before, one of, shortly after 9-11, uh, former senior intelligence official said something to me that I always remembered. He said he worried that by the time we mastered the Al-Qaeda problem, would Al-Qaeda be the problem? And he was right. So we've hardwired our agencies to do a very good job at counterterrorism. We saw this with the takedown of the ISIS leader just a couple of weeks ago. But the threat landscape has changed dramatically. 
We talked about cyber threats. We, I'm sure we'll get to China. We've talked a little bit about Russia. It's a different threat environment today. And we need organizational change in order to meet that threat environment. Let's speak about the organizations. Why do we have 18 different intelligence agencies? It sounds like a big number. It's a very large number, and part of it is the political dynamic. So I'll be I'll be a little bit more less flip and a little bit more serious to begin with, and then I'll give you my flip answer. That intelligence agencies are specialized. Some collect human intelligence, some like the NSA focus on signals intelligence, and there's some benefit to having specialization in intelligence missions. There's also a cost, which is coordination. The somewhat flip answer is a political answer, which is whenever there is an intelligence failure, the natural inclination is to create a new agency because creating new agencies look like you're doing something big, even if it's not the best solution. So I, you know, you see after intelligence failures, we get yet another new agency. And if you think that 9-11, the key problem was coordination, which is what I found in my research, creating more intelligence agencies to coordinate may not be the best organizational reform. I give you the Patriot Act, the greatest restructuring of government since the 1947 Intelligence Act, with probably even less debate about it. Less debate. And then in terms of restructuring, so that was really a lot of new authorities. But in terms of restructuring, uh, the Intelligence and Terrorism Reform Prevention Act of 2004, creating the Director of National Intelligence, was a massive change as well. And that's evolved over time and it's gotten better. But there's still serious coordination problems that the Director of National Intelligence has for many of the same reasons the CIA director had in the half century before that which is that if you're running, uh, if you want to coordinate across 17 other agencies, you need two real levers of power in Washington, power over the money and power over people. And Congress watered down those authorities when it passed that legislation, just like it did in the 1940s, hobbling the ability of the DNI, like the CIA director, to really knock bureaucratic heads together. And let's talk about something that I bet will send you spinning around the room the spy entertainment complex. You have congressmen who watch Jack Bauer and fully expect we will extract the terrorist's confession under pain of torture before the commercial break. So I have to acknowledge that I love spy-themed entertainment as much as the next person, so I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer. I've, I've watched spy-themed shows just like everybody else. But my research found that spy-themed entertainment isn't just entertainment, that it has real consequences for public opinion on the one hand and policymaking on the other. I talked a little bit about my, my polls of my UCLA students. Well, I did national polls about what Americans thought about intelligence agencies too. And what I found was at the height of the Snowden controversy in 2013, when former NSA contractor Edward Snowden revealed highly classified programs uh, that many found disturbing conducted by the National Security Agency, at the height of that press coverage, uh, most Americans in my national survey had no idea what the National Security Agency even did for a living. So they didn't understand the main missions. 75% of Americans thought the NSA interrogated detainees. They don't. And so the upshot of that is that American, uh, the American public is forming opinions on the basis of, of uh, either no information or misinformation coming from the movies. 
On the policy side, I found a number of examples of policymakers using Jack Bauer plot lines from 24 to reason through real intelligence policy. You can't make this stuff up. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence actually asked in a confirmation hearing of a CIA director about fictional ticking time bomb scenarios from the entertainment business, which experts say are completely unrealistic and have never happened. I found Supreme Court justices using Jack Bauer to reason through cases that might come before the court. I found um, cadets at West Point and the dean at West Point so concerned about the show 24 and how it depicted torture and how it always worked that he visited the scene, the, the set of the show 24 in Los Angeles to request that they made episodes where torture didn't work. And in a truth is stranger than fiction moment, he came wearing his uniform the crew thought he was an actor, not a general. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you know, entertainment is is not just entertainment. And you're right, I could go spinning for a long time. Zero Dark Thirty, CIA director had to write a memo to his own workforce dispelling the fiction that Zero Dark Thirty was perpetrating. So when the when the head of the agency has to debunk a movie about the agency to the agency, entertainment is not just entertainment. Well, would you qualify it as misinformation? I think it could qualify as misinformation. In the case of Zero Dark Thirty, I think in particular, because the movie portrays itself as true. Now, many spy-themed entertainment movies, James Bond, no one's claiming that James Bond is realistic, but the team behind Zero Dark... <laughs> But the team behind Zero Dark Thirty—I <laughs> hate to burst your bubble—but James oh Bond is not real. But the team behind Zero Dark Thirty—if you remember when that movie came out—the opening frame says, based on firsthand accounts of actual events, not inspired by, based on firsthand accounts of actual events. And the writer and director marketed that film as a first draft of history and a reported film, and it was not. It was a fictional film. And so I think there's more responsibility that Hollywood could take for making clear when we're talking about fact and when we're talking about fiction. Well, there are politicians misinformed or congressmen playing to the home audience, however you want to take it. And then there is the body of the working government, their staffs, for example, the career professionals at these agencies they know the difference, surely. I think it's hard to know. You know, government employees watch the same entertainment that we all watch. And so I don't think, I would not assume that. And especially, you know, what I find in my book is that it's one thing if there's a lot of spy-themed entertainment and there are also sources of facts. But spy-themed mm -hmm. entertainment is largely all we have. Spy-themed entertainment has become adult education. So, you know, for example, I looked at AP exams in U.S. government, right, and U.S. history. I looked at AP exams over 10 years, and almost no questions were asked about intelligence. I looked at uh, syllabi and courses offered by the top 25 universities ranked by U.S. News and World Report. Almost none of them, or very few of them, not almost none, very few of them offer courses on intelligence. I found more of the top 25, Quentin, offered courses on the history of rock and roll than U.S. intelligence, which means I can joke to my students, they have a better chance of learning about you to the band rather than you to the spy plane. 
So we have an education crisis, I think, in this country that you know we don't have many sources of real information about how these agencies operate, and they're pretty secretive about what they do. Yeah, this is a, this is a real problem, and perhaps the transparency the U.S. is showing in its intelligence findings now is a source of power and hope, because there is too much information for the agencies. There's also too much information for the general public. And in some ways, this is why the misinformation of various bad actors or the less noxious misinformation of a spy theme show is so dangerous because it creates a sense of certainty or a desire for certainty and action. Um, I think Russia enjoys misinformation because it sets the stage for authoritarianism. People are tired of having to think through all these things and having all this uncertainty in their lives. So they choose what seems like strength at the expense of freedom, potentially. Um, I don't know how you solve that problem other than make people better at understanding uncertainty, working through things, seeking authoritative facts. Do you have any clues for our audience? Yeah, I mean, I think we're living in a time where there's so much misinformation and it's hard to get authoritative expertise on a whole host of topics. And I think that's particularly vexing for intelligence agencies. I think that what we what we tend to see is a public that swings between thinking these agencies are incompetent and they're omnipotent, right? So they can see anything, do anything, go anywhere, you know, track your phone calls with your grandmother on the one hand. And then how, how could they ever do anything right on the other, right? And so, yeah. and I think it's really important for secret agencies in a democracy in particular to be well understood because if American voters don't know the truth about what these agencies do and don't care, members of Congress can't ensure that their weaknesses are fixed and their excesses are prevented. So whether you care mo more about civil liberties or intelligence efficacy, both of them actually are improved by having better information, public information about the nature of this business and what our agencies can and cannot do. You're an intelligence expert, dangerously close to being optimistic. <laughs> I, I <laughs> but I catastrophize for a living, so I'm probably not that optimistic <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, let's move to China. <laughs> <laughs> What is the relationship with that like? How do the intelligence, we've, sp we've spoken of Russia, let's speak of China a little bit. So, you know, it's interesting, the FBI director just in the past couple of weeks had a major speech where he really singled out China. And he talked about China being the greatest threat to our freedom, to our intellectual property uh, of any country in the world. And he spoke at length about the strategies that China is using, including you know, buying and spying and coercing Chinese nationals studying in the United States. So it was, a, it was quite a forceful statement about the China challenge, not just from an intelligence perspective, but from a geopolitical perspective. And he said something else that I think is important, which is that on, in general, the FBI is opening a new China-related counterintelligence investigation every 12 hours. This is an extraordinarily active foreign intelligence service 
that is going full bore to steal our intellectual property, to recruit human assets, to gain decision advantage, which is what intelligence is about. It is the most active foreign adversary from an intelligence perspective confronting the United States. That's astonishing. Has there ever been a threat like that before? You know, I don't know that there's data about, I, the FBI director doesn't usually talk about how many investigations Again, it's, they're it's opening. It's an abundance problem. And it it's, is. A, it's a lot of little, probably a lot of those are little pings. It's not like they're planting somebody at the NSA every 12 hours. They're no, but what we can't, what is unprecedented, probably. and I think what's fair to say is unprecedented, is the scale of China's intelligence activities. So if you think just about one cyber attack in 2015, China hacked the Office of Personnel Management. Sounds like a very boring organization. What mm. they did, <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's where your security clearances are processed. So 22 million records of people with the highest level of clearances and others in the country. That's an intelligence bonanza for China. And it's an intelligence nightmare for the United States. And that's just one of China's oh, massive can... cyber attacks. You you have the goods on everyone, but if you track careers and processes, you also basically build a Facebook of the intelligence community. Who knows who and how they related and who knew what and how power exists. And, and what their medical problems old. might be, if they have financial problems, who their foreign friends are, so you can get to them and possibly yeah. recruit them. Um, you hear about these things. You have friends in the business. Are there countermeasures? Are there things they can do? Any remediation? There are. And I, I should hasten to add that, you know, I'm an outsider to this world. So I, am, um, I, I often say I'm like an anthropologist who goes to the distant reaches of Washington, D.C. to observe this rare and secret people called intelligence officers. So I don't know all the things that our government is doing. But yes, I my understanding is they're very aware of the counterintelligence challenge and taking steps to try to combat it. Um, but it is something that is, again, in terms of speed and scale, I think really different than the counterintelligence challenges of the past. You think about how easy it is to download thousands of classified documents and compare that to the Cold War when it took years for traders to pull documents and take them out in their pants and in garbage bags, one bag at a time and put them under a bridge, right? Which is what Robert Hansen did uh, when he betrayed the FBI. So it's a big challenge now. And I know the government is, is certainly aware of it and, and working hard to combat it. Now, I know you're just a simple country Stanford professor, but in the movie Rocky, they say, you hang out with smart people, you get smart friends. You hang out with stupid people, you get stupid friends. You hang out with spy people, so you got a lot of spy friends. Um, what are they like? So one of the, I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the things that I'm really proud of about this book is that I, I really worked hard to try to have their voices come through. So I'm very critical of the intelligence community. I've written a lot of critical things about their failures, but I also wanted the reader to know what it's like to work inside the intelligence community. So I interviewed a number of people and I asked them questions like, when did you tell your kids what you did for a living? And what did they do when they found out? What were your ethical challenges? What were your best and worst days in your career? Take me into that. <laughs> Take me into that, go. 
When do so, they tell their kids and what's that like? So it depends. They have discretion about when to tell their children. The reactions really vary. I was really struck by one intelligence officer who spent two decades in the clandestine service. So he worked in some dangerous places, recruiting human assets, and he lived in some of these places with his family. And he recounted to me a moment where there was a credible death threat, not just against him, but against his children. And he had to tell his kids not only what he did, but how to stay safe on the streets, how to look for whether something's the same or whether it's changed, whether there's something suspicious. And so I interviewed him over a course of hours and in between our interview, two different times, and in between, he decided to ask one of his sons what his son remembered about this experience. And he related to me, yeah, his son remembered that when he heard what his dad did for a living, he thought it was pretty cool. So that was one reaction. Other reactions have been very, you know, kids have been very upset. I guess what really struck me in these conversations um, was how much the intelligence officers I spoke to from a number of different agencies, how much they really think about ethics, how much they lose sleep over the ethical quandaries and decisions they have to make. This is not a mindless, do whatever it takes, go over the line community of people. They are very much, whether to keep a collection stream running or reveal the information to help a policymaker and remove that ability to collect, that's an ethical decision, right? How are we going to do, how are we going to weigh those trade-offs? How do we think about whether to put people in harm's way and what the value might be if they're risking their lives? They think about these things every day. And so I hope those, those stories and that real, reality of their lives really comes through. Well, I think you're making a really interesting point, which is fundamentally, yeah, you're counting missile silos or you're wondering who's up and who's down at the Politburo, but you're collecting these through human agents or you're reading encrypted conversations that you've decrypted and you've, you know, you're seeing people's lives and careers. You cannot do this kind of analysis without an emotional dimension and a certain level of, you know, a good one would have a level of empathy for the enemy and an emotional capability and an imagination to understand these motivations. That's got to be an enormous burden over time. These people, do they compartmentalize? Do they, how, do they, how do the best ones cope with this? You know, I think there are a range of tools and tactics. I know one of the folks I interviewed talked about, he began mindfulness training inside the agency to deal with the stress of the job. You know, I, one of the, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, dealing with the enemy and how do you feel responsibility for people that you're recruiting? I talked to one analyst who was one of the crucial analysts in the Cold War, really focused on Poland, which was really would be ground zero if the Soviets and the Americans ever really came to war. And he had this source and the source feared that he was going to be blown. And he was an incredibly valuable source. And he was exfiltrated from uh, Europe and brought into the United States. And what they did was he, he had such great insight into the thinking of uh, you know, Soviet bloc officials, military officials, that they kept him involved. And so this analyst, whose name is Aris Pappas, he's since retired, uh, went, he de- describes when he met the source at the safe house for the first time in person, and how he says, oh my God, it's this man. And he came with his family and they called him George. And he said, you know, I never briefed my wife and I never briefed my kids, but 
They read the news. They knew this guy had defected. And why was I hanging out with a 50-year-old Polish military officer? And I was a 30-something-year-old analyst. And George would come for dinner. And George would go on boats. And nobody talked about George. Right. So they knew his family knew, even though he didn't tell them anything, how important this man was and how he gave everything to help the United States. So a great analyst has an emotional capability, bears an emotional burden. But increasingly, we're dealing with an enormous amount of digital information, an enormous amount of data. And there is a lot of pressure to use AI, be that in drones, be that in going through collection. What do you see as the role of a computer-driven intelligence service? How will that seem to these analysts? How can we have the best possible outcome using AI? So I think AI is going to be essential for analysis moving forward. And I was part of a uh, CSIS task force. So the Center for Strategic and International Studies did a deep dive with our task force looking at AI and intelligence. There are certain things that machines do much better and faster than humans. And there are certain things that humans do much better and faster than machines. And so the two have to go hand in hand. So AI is so good at pattern recognition if the data that you have from the past looks like the present and the future, AI can really save a lot of time. So identifying surface-to-air missile sites over a large swath of territory in China. Um, in fact, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency commissioned a team, a university team, to create an algorithm to do that. And the algorithm had the same level of accuracy as the human team, but did the job 80 times faster. So AI can really free up time for analysts to focus on the things that humans do better than machines, which is bringing creativity to problems, trying to divine the intentions of adversaries, things where the past may not be, and big data may not give you a good guide to the future if your N or your sample size is one, what's in the mind of Kim Jong-un or what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin. So I think AI is essential and the intelligence community needs to move faster to adopt these technological tools. Mm, there's a argument out in the Valley, it's not AI, it's IA, intelligence augmentation. These, you know, turn the machines over to things machines are good at, but ultimately the imaginative, emotional taste, if you will, capability rests more on the human side. And the two together are stronger than either on their own. I have a question from the audience. It says, how concerned are you by the use of foreign-like intelligence domestically? Um, perhaps that means the sort of things the NSA is assigned to do to foreign countries, turning those capabilities on the domestic population? Well, I think it's, we always have to be vigilant about oversight. So our intel of the 18 agencies we've talked about, there's only one that has clear marching orders to collect intelligence domestically, and that's the FBI. And the FBI operates within the Justice Department for a reason, right? More oversight, more statutory requirements, more oversight by the judiciary, more oversight by the Congress. The other intelligence agencies are supposed to, and by law should, train their collection abroad. Now, there are some gaps, right? And there are some weaknesses to doing that. 
Uh, and we saw some of those weaknesses before 9-11 when terrorists communicate between the United States and foreign countries, right? That was a gap in intelligence. So it's an important issue how to make sure that our intelligence agencies are effective but also that we're being vigilant about protecting civil liberties at a time when information is moving seamlessly across borders. That's a challenging task. Another question, how closely do social media companies work with intelligence agencies? It depends. So it depends on the time. It depends on the topic. It depends on the company. Depends on where they're headquartered. Depends on where they're headquartered. It depends on what the leaders of those companies believe. So some companies are much more forthcoming about partnering with the U.S. government than others. Um, I would say as a general matter, the trust between social media companies in particular and the U.S. government was very bad after Edward Snowden. So in sort of 2013, 2014, there was tremendous distrust uh, between uh, those companies and the government. I think it's gotten much better since then. And one of the reasons it's gotten a lot better is the China threat. The China threat isn't just to American national security, it's to American economic prosperity. And it also affects the intellectual property uh, of uh, American companies. And so I think you see, you know, a, a, you know I, I, the government has worked hard at this too, trying to build bridges uh, and better work with the private sector. Um, but I often say that, you know, the pr part of the challenge is language. So Defense Department officials love to use the D word, destroy, defeat, degrade, right? Um, and I think folks in the Valley, I don't know if you think this, Quentin, but I, I think folks in the Valley like to use C words, create, collaborate, uh, change. And so there's, a, there's an important coming together culturally that needs to happen, not just in terms of incentives, but in terms of how, uh, as I call them, suits and hoodies think about the world. And I think we're making progress on that front. I, I, again, I do not speak for Google, but I do think um, we are in a period where previously comfortably siloed definitions don't work very well. When someone in a university in Beijing is um, doing a scam involving the Russian mob that is getting intelligence information via a server in Nigeria, and it, the target is the US, is that a crime? Is that an act of war? Is that intelligence gathering? Is that all of the above? You know, Where do we bucket that one? And there's a lot of that in the digital world. That's a somewhat extreme example, but probably happened somewhere this week, right? And so we need a sense of definitions, guardrails, behaviors that are appropriate for a world where we're still finding our way through how some of this works. I think one of the key definitional issues for uh, Google and other companies is what's a weapon? Because from my perspective, if we're in a world where information is so critical, and it is, data is essential for national power, national prosperity, Tech companies aren't just victims, they're vectors. They can be weapons. They're being weaponized by our adversaries. And so I think it's really important for tech company leaders to acknowledge that, that they are in the crosshairs, whether they like it or not. And they have to think about those responsibilities, whether they like it or not. They are policymakers that have power akin to many governments. 
And that's a new role for the U.S. government to have to work with the private sector. And it's a new role for the private sector to have to assume or think about responsibilities to the nation. Before we started, we talked about the lessons of history. And you and I both know that multinational oil companies, multinational communications companies worked closely with the, those aren't necessarily new problems or new opportunities. Um, they, the players are new, but the problems are time-worn, shall we say. I don't really know how to take the everything is a weapon thing because everything's always been a weapon. You I don't know, think so. I don't think everything is about wasting for energy. I don't think, you know, I don't think everything has always been a weapon. I think if you think about what are attacks that could cripple our financial sector, that could create widespread physical damage, that could bring our country to its knees, those attacks are through networks. And those networks are owned and operated by private sector companies. I think that's fundamentally those I have different. No doubt they take extremely seriously. Yeah. And and that is documented. I don't think they need the government to be brought in for that, but Let's set that aside. Uh, another question. What can be done about political blowback with media and politicians outing agents and secrets? What happens when there is a change in political parties and policy? Mm, that's a, is that, a, is that a big problem? I yeah. think I think there have been increasing concerns because of the last administration. Uh, and and, and I, I really think it's important for intelligence to be nonpartisan to be professional. If people think that intelligence has a dog in the fight of a, of a particular political point of view, uh, that's bad for any future president. And what we saw, I think, in the Trump administration was a real politicization of intelligence. You know, he called intelligence officials Nazis. He thought, he said he believed Vladimir Putin more than his own agencies. He accused uh, intelligence agencies of spying on him. Um, illegally, which has turned out not to be the case, of course. And so that was damaging. No question that was damaging. And I think what we're seeing is more of a return to how things used to be with intelligence. You see, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, more transparency from our intelligence community um, and a return to that apolitical professional function, just as the military is apolitical and professional. It's funny to say, I'm a, I was a journalist for many decades, but I'm getting weary of cynicism about all these things. I think for the most part, these are good actors trying to do their best, particularly career professionals in these, in these agencies. Um, another question, to what degree is Huawei an extension of the Chinese government? I'm not qualified to touch that. How about you? Well, my own view is when you have a state authoritarian model, every Chinese company is to some extent an extension of the Chinese government. There is no separate private sector like there is in the United States. And I think industries in those critical uh, sectors, critical technologies, are far more tied to the Chinese Communist Party than we might think they are. And sometimes those ties are opaque, right? So it's, um, are there party officials that have uh, board seats or are there, um, what are the requirements? And of course, by Chinese law, companies have to turn over information to the government if it's requested. So even if they're not populated by government officials, and even if they're not working at the behest of the government, there's tremendous coercive power that the Chinese Communist Party has. And everyone knows that coercive power. So they're not free in the way that companies in, in this country are free uh, to do what they want. It's fundamentally different. Fair. 
How is jurisdiction determined for international acts of espionage directed at the U.S.? Well, international acts of espionage are actually not against international law. So it's one of those, it's not illegal. It's never been against international law to spy. So all countries spy, um, allies spy on each other, enemies spy on each other, and they're supposed to obey their own country's laws. So American intelligence officials have to follow American law but they are free to violate foreign law where they're operating and our allies and adversaries do the same. So it's not a, it's, it may come as a surprise, but there's no real international law against espionage. Um, we're heading towards the top of the hour. And I did want you to talk a little bit about um, the challenges and the ways forward. And one thing you talk about a lot is the five mores. Describe that for the audience, because I think it's a really good um, jumping off place for talking about the problem set and how to come at it. Um, so I, I love your your opening where you talked about the abundance, and that is certainly a similar way to how I think about the challenges in intelligence. So as we think about this moment of converging technologies, we think about the internet, social media, we think about satellites. You mentioned the thousands of satellites in space. We think about AI, quantum computing that we have this convergence of a number of emerging technologies and together they're creating these five mores challenge for intelligence agencies. The first more is more threats, more threats that can reach across cyberspace and threaten us from the comfort of their own laptop. We've never had that before. You know, in physical space, we have two oceans that protect us from bad neighborhoods, but there are no good neighborhoods in cyberspace. So we have more threats. The second more is more speed. These threats are moving faster, and intelligence has to move at the speed of relevance for policymakers. Uh, and so that's accelerating. Think about the, the crisis in Ukraine playing out right now, how fast that intelligence needs to move. So more speed. The third more, and Quentin, you've talked about this so well, more data, right? We're drowning in data. And how do we make sense of and get insight from data today? The fourth more, more customers. So people at Google need intelligence from the intelligence community about the cyber threat landscape, for example, and vice versa. I'm sure Google engineers have a lot they could share with the U.S. government. But voters need intelligence today about foreign election interference. So intelligence agencies have to produce for people who don't have security clearances. And that's a big change from the past uh, where they've only produced for the classified world. Lest, lest our viewers think that just pertains to tech companies, you mentioned financial services, power companies, pretty much anyone who is on the internet, which would be anyone. So think Colonial Pipeline or any kind of critical infrastructure, power, water, transportation, financial services. Um, given cyber threats to critical infrastructure, those leaders need intelligence too. So that's, you know, they, so intelligence agencies have to do the unnatural act, which is producing for an unclassified customer. So that's the fourth more is more customers. And then the fifth, and perhaps one of the more interesting things that I, that I learned about in the course of writing the book, more competitors. Because of new technologies, spying isn't just for governments anymore. And so I have a chapter on citizen detective nuclear sleuths and what everyday people and organizations are doing to track nuclear threats around the world using commercially available imagery 
and open source or publicly available intelligence. And they're making some remarkable discoveries. I mean, there are risks to this world too, and I get into those. But the upshot for US intelligence agencies is governments don't dominate the collection and analysis of intelligence like they have been, like they did in the past. This is a much more democratizing world of espionage. Last night on Twitter, I saw a map of the flight path of a drone over the Ukraine. Or maybe I did. You know, I saw what was purported to be, right? Let's not be too certain that wasn't misinformation. Small snapshot of what this world is like. Um, they understand the problems you're outlining. These aren't stupid people. These are intelligence people, and they know these five mores. I'm sure they agree with you. Two questions. Um, how well prepared are they? They see the challenges. Do they understand actions? And lastly, does history provide us with any guidance? Two big questions. So I think, you know, the you intelligence- have three minutes. <laughs> the world in three minutes. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best. So, you know, I think a number of people, senior people in the intelligence community are very well aware of these challenges and working hard to deal with them. The CIA director, Director Burns, has announced new initiatives to focus on technology, to focus on China, to bring better talent in the door faster, for example. The director of national intelligence issued similar calls, including calls for more transparency. I think they're quite well aware. Um, it's a hard challenge. The most powerful interest group in Washington is the status quo. It's hard to get organizations to change, even when you have things in the private sector like the ability to hire and fire, the ability to measure success and failure. These things are much more challenging in intelligence than they are in any other kind of business. And so there's a real challenge to adopting technology, in particular inside the intelligence community. You know, in the Cold War, the government invented technology and then it became commercialized. Think about GPS satellites invented by the government, then commercialized. The Internet invented by a government agency, the ARPANET, and then commercialized. But now it's the opposite. Innovations are invented in the private sector and the government has to figure out ways to bring them in. And that's really hard for a whole host of reasons. So I think there's an awareness of the need to change, but getting from here to there is exceptionally difficult. Your second question, does history provide a guide? I think it does. I think it suggests to us that the cost of adaptation failure can be extraordinarily high. The lesson from Pearl Harbor was that intelligence agencies collected the signals, but didn't put them together in time. We had information, but we didn't use it well enough and, and coherently enough to see the signals through the noise. And then we see 9-11, right? 9-11, similar coordination problems. We had, in my research, 23 opportunities that the CIA and the FBI had to penetrate that plot, and they missed every single one. And they adapted after failure, but they didn't adapt fast enough before failure. And there were lots of indicators in the decade before 9-11 that smart people saw this threat coming. Smart people at the top of the intelligence community tried to get change and failed. And so I think this is another adapt or fail moment with this convergence of technology and the rise of China. And I think if the intelligence community can learn the lesson from history is we have to get better at adapting before disaster strikes rather than reforming after disaster strikes. And in that vein, um, 
you have a wonderful quote in this book of uh, someone pointing out that when you spend a billion dollars finding out a secret, by definition, that secret is worth a billion dollars. It's one of my favorite so, quotes in the book that someone said to it's me. Genius. You know, it's, it's absolutely genius because it, it that's not just a government thing. Any bureaucracy tends towards that kind of observation. This is what it took. QED, it's valuable. Um, and with that in mind, you have a very interesting, if mind-melting idea, let's create a 19th intelligence agent. You wouldn't think that was the plan, but your point is, a 19th agency devoted to open source information and in a sense transparency to take from what this what the US appears to be doing in Ukraine against Russia and times 10 just find open source stuff because perhaps these institutional cult cultures of secrecy aren't capable of dealing with public information the way they should say a little more about that yeah. So, you know, secret agencies are always going to favor secrets. That's what they're designed to do. It's what they value. It's the business they're in. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. they bad at sharing. <laughs> and they're bad at sharing. There's nothing wrong with that. You want them to be focused on secrets, but there's a reason that it's an unnatural act to embrace open source intelligence. It's not the priority of these agencies. And the analogy I give is, you know, air power didn't get the resources and attention that it needed until the Air Force was separated from the Army. So they used to be, Air Force used to be part of the Army. And there's a reason it was separated after World War II. I think open source is, is the same thing. I think open source intelligence, what we can glean from this abundance of capabilities that you've alluded to, is the name of the game for insight in the future. And it's not just about stuff. It's about an ecosystem of organizations that are developing tradecraft, that are developing norms, that are developing training, better or worse. And so our intelligence community, I think, needs a dedicated open source agency, not only to bring stuff in, but to engage with this ecosystem of players so that it can shape the dynamics to its advantage. We don't want more misinformation, more deception to creep into our intelligence processes through open source. We want to be able to raise the game of open source collectors and analysts so that they can be a positive force for intelligence in the world and not part of what adversaries do. Well, you've just outlined um, an overlap of rationality, optimism, and plausibility. So I'm going to leave the conversation right there. <laughs> what a great note to end on. I could go on much, much longer. This is a fascinating talk. Thank you so much, Amy Zegert. That brings us to the end of today's program on a positive note, which is great to know. And uh, I do highly personal plug, recommend the book. I'm sorry we can't have a book signing tonight, but your next book. I'd like to encourage everyone to purchase the book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, wherever books are sold. And with that, tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. I'm Quentin Hardy. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support. 